finished the series on this idea of prayer that changes things. Because that's what it comes down to. Through the series, we have looked at things like uh, how do we respond to when times when it seems that God is silent. Uh, we've looked at how to pray in terms of practical individual prayer with quiet times and acts, you know, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. And, and we've talked about corporate prayer and the power of corporate prayer uh, in terms of uh, enhancing uh, spiritual warfare and being able to hear from our prophets and learning how to pray from other saints and, and unity is forged in that. And so we've learned about corporate prayer and individual prayer and, and how God uses prayer and scripture and for people. We looked at all of that stuff, but at the end of it all, we really want our prayers to affect change. We want effective prayer. We want prayer that changes things. And so this morning I thought we'd look at four things that we study on in terms of what scripture can teach us about what is effective prayer, about how our prayer actually affects change in our lives and in the world. And uh, so that's what we'll be looking at this morning. Let's just open up the word of prayer. Father God, this is what is on our hearts. And there are lots of sometimes confusing and challenging verses on this very topic. Because we want prayer to be effective. We want our prayer to change things in our lives. We want us to be changed. We want our circumstances to be changed as we will it to be. And for your glory, we want uh, our friends and neighbors and family members to come to Christ. We want to see people who are suffering and in pain to be released from that suffering. We want to see uh, marriages healed. We want to see our children are strengthened in the faith. There are so many prayers that we pray, Lord, that are not just empty words. We want to be changed. And our scriptures here, there's teaching in your word that can be difficult and confusing to us when we consider what it means to pray in a way that affects change, that, that changes things. So, Lord, I just pray your blessing upon our Lord here this morning. Um, not my word, but your word. And that it would Settle in our hearts and transform us and teach us and enlighten us as only your Holy Spirit can make happen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we pose that final question about all this other stuff that we've learned about prayer and, and, and this idea that as we go forward, what we want to know is how will all of my praying and how will all of our praying be effective? That, that prayer will change things. And, and the answer to that question, many of you, and even as I say that, effective prayer, many of you will probably have already brought a very specific verse to mind, which is the last part of James 5.16. And, uh, and, and the last part of James 5.16 actually points us to the first four fairly brief answers that we will look into in Scripture in answer to that question of how prayer is effective. In James 5.16, the last part of it says, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Right? That's where our, our minds go as believers when we think about what is effective prayer. And it's that challenging verse of James. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And so that brings us to our first point, that effective prayer is righteous. And that's a scary verse, because what can it mean to be righteous? Uh, we know ourselves too well to call ourselves righteous. We all have a long memory for those things in our life that bring us shame and regret, or would bring us shame if people knew about them, perhaps. But it brings shame in our own heart. We can think back to when we were kids. We can think back to high school. We can think of university or college. We can think of last week, right? And we have a memory of those things that we know we wouldn't be able to call ourselves righteous. And it seems impossible that we could be called righteous because then how could our prayer 
Bible tells us that no one is going to sin if we say we are, then we're calling God a liar. Verse 1, it seems like that. But God remembers that we are weak. Psalm 103.14 says that He remembers our frame. He remembers how we're made up. He knows that we are dust. And that God has given us strength to be our righteousness. In 1 Corinthians 1.3, you have to pair this with what Jim says. And what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, he says that it is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. And that's an interesting statement there, wisdom from God. Hang on to that. We'll get back to it later in James. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. And so our righteousness is not rooted in our works, which is where we first go, right? We do all the things we've done. And we think we can't be called righteousness because of our behavior. But our righteousness is not rooted first in our works. And then because we have behaved properly, it's somehow granted to us by God. God says, well, you've measured up, and so now I can call you righteous. That's not how it works. That's not the righteousness that Scripture ever talks about, except in the negative sense of the law, right? Rather, it's exactly the other way around. Our righteousness is rooted only in Jesus, who then enables us to do good works. And you listen to this, to make this point, I go to this parable that Jesus told, and just listen and Jesus himself teaches his people exactly what he means by this. He teaches his truth. In Luke 18, 9 to 14, he tells this parable. Specifically, he tells the parable to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. And Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance, and he would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's a pretty powerful parable. It's really teaching this ecstatic point. If your righteousness is not based on what it is that you do, whether you fast or tithe or any of those things, your righteousness comes first from God. And so when we go into our prayer slots, and this is where it connects to prayer, when we come before the throne of God our Father in humility, it's God that covers us in a righteousness of His own that isn't ours. And if you want to claim the effective prayer, it's effective prayer that comes from righteousness, and you have to accept that righteousness comes first from God through Jesus. And so if you look at that verse in James that talks about the power of a prayer comes from a righteous man, we accept first that a righteousness comes from God through Jesus. But God doesn't finish there. And we have to consider all of Scripture, not just the bits and pieces of it that we kind of like. And although our righteousness is rooted in Christ, there is an expectation that it will be worked out in our lives through obedience. And so righteousness does indeed start with God, and it does indeed start rooted in Christ. But then as we continue in Scripture, we realize that there's an expectation that the righteousness that's granted to us will be worked out in obedience. And Paul explains this connection between what Jesus has done in our obedience in this way. He says to Titus, his young 
exactly the right word. I have to come up with an English word for it. But, but I think that's what I mean by sincerity. If we want our prayers to be effective, we must be sincere. We must be honest with ourselves and God. Because we're never free of our flesh and we live in the world. And so it's very easy to deceive ourselves that as we go to prayer, that our wants and our needs and things, the way that we think our life should work out, and the way we think that God should act in the world, is really the way it should be, when in fact they are selfish. I've actually sat with well-meaning Christians who are literally praying to God, God, make me financially independent so that I can serve you full-time and use your wealth to support ministry. Okay, sir. How entangled can the motives of that prayer be? If someone would pray that God make me financially independent so that they can serve him full-time and use his money to further the ministry. Like maybe they're praying that with a really pure heart, but I don't know if you can pray that with a perfectly pure, sincere heart. I mean, just how tangled up can a mortal see in prayer like that? And there are certainly people who God has blessed in that way, but I don't think it was an answer to that prayer. And that prayer sounds a lot like the Pharisee in Luke 18, right? Thank you, Lord, for making me different than these other men, for letting me serve you and, and give money and fight generously. Thank you, Lord, for that. You know, maybe our prayers are not so obviously immersed with our own passions and desires for wealth or security or whatever they are, but they can be less obvious. We have to be gut-wrenchingly honest about our motives in prayer. And James takes a vivid picture here of how transparent we should be before God. He says a few verses later in chapter 4, 7 to 10, he says, Submit yourselves then to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. That's uncomfortable imagery when it comes to prayer. Isn't it? James continues on there. Because it, it, it sounds like the opposite of the joy we're seeking, but, but James is talking about our friendship with the world. Right? He's still talking about this friendship, this double mindedness that we have with the world. The false pleasure that comes from selfish desires. And James says, Humble yourself, sincerely before God, and He will be the one to lift you up. His will for your life is better than your will for your life. The sincerity that God desires is an honest rejection of the pleasures of the world and an honest love for Him and what He offers instead. It is the same sincerity in the heart of our Luke 18 tax collector. Right? In, in, in contrast to the Pharisee, the tax collector, he just comes before God and wanted to look up and just beats his breasts. He says, It's just you. It's just you, God. I got nothing. Right? He, he's not asking God to make him rich so that he's serving full time and tied to Muslim and, and, and be all the greatness that the Pharisees have to him. No, the tax collector is just, just you, God. Nothing else but you. That's all I need. He humbles himself and he's sincere before God. And he's, he's honest and, and not admit his own desires in his prayers. And it's a hard level of sincerity and honesty to reach. And your prayers may not start out that sincere. You may be struggling to believe that God is merciful and that His blessings overflow to us, that He is all that we need, and that He intends good for us and not evil. And you may be struggling to, to feel that He has final control over every detail of the world that, and, and that, that we need what He has more than we need our stopping list of prayers answered. You might not start out there, but as you look at the Scripture and you pray back to God the truth of Himself, and you ask with sincerity that you see how He sees, 
Christianity, steadfast and go on to perfection and maturity in Christ Jesus. And so that's the context of the verse here, where James is saying, when you pray, pray for wisdom from God. Pray for God to act in your life. Pray for God to give you guidance and to be leading through the Holy Spirit. You have this wisdom, and when you pray that prayer, you pray with an absolute faith that God will answer it. Because God is not trying to hide His wisdom from you. He is desperate to give it to you. And if you pray that prayer sincerely and in faith, then you will receive the wisdom of God. But what about this, you know, doubting or double-mindedness? There, James is talking about Christians who don't really want that wisdom from God. But they are praying that they don't really want God to transform their life. That they don't really want this righteousness from God. And so they're kind of praying, but they're praying half-heartedly and insincerely because they don't really want change. Because it's a dangerous prayer to pray to the wisdom of God. It's a dangerous prayer to pray that God would perfect you and give you perseverance and steadfastness and move you on to maturity and perfection. It's a dangerous prayer because you might actually do it. And that means changing our lives. And that means letting go of the things in the world that James is warning us about. It means recognizing and being sincere that we have put our hearts and our pleasures and our joys on things that are not from God. And that He will take those things from us if we pray sincerely this prayer, this wisdom. You see, we have to pray with faith. We have to pray with absolute trust in God that He knows what is good for our righteousness. And He will grant it. So don't doubt. Don't doubt that God is going to do exactly this thing or that thing that we pray for. But don't doubt that God's nature. Don't doubt in His generosity. Don't doubt that He will not pour out onto us His wisdom. God will do better things than we ask, but only according to our faith in His generosity and mercy and desire to give what we ask. So prayer that's not faithful is not only that I explicitly trust that God will do this exact thing for me, that sort of faith may not always be appropriate. But prayer that is faithful is the kind of prayer that has foundations and absolute confidence that God will be God and He will act according to His nature and that He will not fail in our sanctification or our becoming more sure in Christ if we ask in faith. So prayer that is effective is prayer that is confident in God and His ministers and His character and His desire towards us. And fourthly, I'll finish with this. Prayer that changes things, prayer that is effective, is constant. The person who has taking hold of the righteousness of Christ as his own, and the person that is cultivating a life of obedience that flows out of that righteousness that begins with Christ, and the person who has humbled themselves sincerely before God and acknowledged their sincere need for him and what he offers in opposition to and in rejection of everything that the world has and the world offers and that their hearts and their flesh desires, and a person who has faith that God will act out and do generously out of His mercy and love towards us when we go and we pray that prayer faithfully, that kind of person will be eager and outspoken and persistent in their prayers before God. They will be constant in prayer. If you have those first three things, you'll have the fourth thing, which is constancy. And I love how the Apostle Paul summarizes all these things that we've been talking about here. Romans 12, 11 to 12, he says, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. And be constant in prayer. So Paul basically says all of these things. And I like that word. I like that word constant. Solid 